Hello and welcome to Retirementals. I'm Abraham Okusoya and it's great to have you all here on the show today. I'm really excited about my guest today. She's the managing director and founder of Balance Wealth Planning, which is a financial planning business based in Nottingham. I'm talking about none other than Rebecca Aldridge. Rebecca, welcome to Retirementals. Hey, great to be here. I'm really, really looking forward to our conversation today. Um, I have observed the rise of your firm from afar, and you know, I'm really excited at the opportunity, um, you know, to learn a lot more about uh, what you're up to and what you're building. Well, I'm excited to share some of the story with you. So, so tell us a little bit about Balance and you know, where you are today. Tell us about the people, the clients, give us some metrics to understand um, you know, what the business looks like today. Sure, so first thing is we're a little and a new company, I think, relative to so many others. So we started out right at the beginning of 2015. So that makes us just over six years old, not very old in the grand scheme of things. Um, I started it from scratch at that time. It was just me and I had absolutely no clients um, at the outset. So it was really blank slate. I could create it however I wanted to, attract the clients that I wanted to and develop the processes I wanted to. So it was exciting. Looking back now, I think I was kind of bonkers, but it was exciting at the time um, and it still is exciting. So now we've got 15 people in the team. Um, that's quite a recent development. So we've actually just recruited five people this year. So yeah, so there's, there's been a lot of onboarding um, to do in recent months, it's been quite exciting. Um, we look after about 200 client families. Um, and I know that everyone's always keen to think about funds under management and that kind of thing. I tend to shy away from measuring that kind of thing because that's, that's not really fundamental to how we operate. Um, but to give context, we probably have on platforms managed under our influence about 120 million. Um, and but the overall influence under our uh, funds under our influence is greater than that. So maybe 150 million, something of that order. Um, so we're doing pretty well, you know, in our sixth year, uh, growing um, organically, nicely, very happy with where we are. That's that's an incredible achievement. Starting from Grand Zero, you know, six years ago. Congratulations, you've done really, really well. Um, Thank you. It hasn't always been easy. But no, absolutely. You know, as, as, as somebody who's, who started a few businesses, I know, um, uh, I should know. So, so, so tell us a little bit about the journey that led to you wanting to, to, to start your own firm. What, what, what did you get up to before, before Balance? Well, I think if I start right at the beginning, that's probably, it would be useful to tell that story because when I left school, by the way, I didn't go to uni. I don't have a stack of um, degrees like many other people do that work in this profession. So I left school after A-levels and I trained as a pension specialist at James Hay. I lived at Sal in Salisbury at the time and they were one of the most you know, significant employers, take on loads of people and I had a really great time there. Um, I decided to relocate to Nottingham and I worked for what's now Talberton Mule. So you can see my early career, very much pension specialism. Um, so I, I haven't come through the kind of uh, 
admin power planner advisor route that so many other people do. I then from there worked for a regional accountancy practice. They wanted to create a pensions division, um, create their own SIP and SAS. So I started working for them and I ended up staying there 15 years and it went far beyond that original brief. So yes, we did build that team and we eventually sold that part of the business. But while I was there, I became a financial planner, um, which got sort of wider in scope. Um, I became a director. And all the way through that, I was responsible for not just looking after clients, but also had a really big operational part of the role. So I've always had this sort of tandem um, interest in working with clients and also being part of the operations of the business and the compliance as well. So I was there 15 years, did a couple of other bits and pieces after that, and just was thinking, nobody is nobody is working the way that I think it should be done. Certainly not close to me anyway. There are a couple of companies sort of a bit further afield that I thought, yes, that, that looks like a really good model. But locally, there was nowhere where I thought, I'd love to work for that firm. Let's see whether I can find a position there. Just wasn't something there. So I thought I'd create it. You know, so so tell us, how should it be done? Well, it's only my opinion, of course, but if I work in that business, <laughs> then it needs to be something that I feel comfortable with. So my view very strongly um, was that I would only feel comfortable working in a firm where it was holistic, the planning was holistic in nature, uh, not transactional, um, where there was a fixed fee for that work uh, and that it was very much goals led. So that was what was important to me. And so I created a firm that was operating like that and actually now it just shows how much has changed I think in the last five or six years because six years ago there were a tiny number of companies that you could say met that, met that description in the country um, now there's many more people who are using a flat fee model there's many more people who are operating a sort of um, holistic or lifestyle financial planning model that is growing and I suppose in a sense you could say there was a lot more competition well but I don't mind that because I really think that's the right direction of travel for the majority of clients and um, so but that didn't really exist in the same way even just that short number of years ago so I had to build it and that was really exciting um, and interesting to do at the same time. So, so this is a theme that keeps coming up and up again, this idea of flat fee, um, you know, financial planning model. So, so let's talk a little bit about that. And, and in preparation for this, um, you know, for this conversation with you, I had a look at your website and, and here's what it says. We don't think that someone, sorry, we don't think it's right that someone with a million invest a million pounds invested should pay 10 times as much as someone with a hundred thousand pounds invested if they have broadly similar services um, we don't think that it's right um, uh, that that client services should be determined by how much money they have it's a dated and opaque way of charging for valuable professional support um, but you nearly, but, but yet nearly all financial advisors still operate this way. Um, we're part of um, the movement for change. Fairy stuff. 
unpack that for me a little bit. So, you know, when you when you read it like that, it does sound a bit combative, doesn't it? It, it sounds like, <laughs> what is it, judo? I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like I'm going into battle. It sounds like, sorry. I think it sounds like I'm going into battle, but that's very much not the case. So I'm, I'm certainly not a, an aggressive or combative person, but what I am is quite principled. And what happened when I set up the company, as I said, I had the opportunity to think, well, I can do things the way I think feels right. I don't have any baggage with me here. So let's just look at this properly and think, how should this business be run? Um, and I stand completely by these principles that you should not measure somebody's service or that they need or the fee that you charge for those services based primarily on what they have in the bank or invested. It's, it's not the most relevant metric that you can use. And if I give an extreme example, you might find a client with, oh, I don't know, let's say 50,000 pounds worth of bits and pieces in 10 different pensions, for example, and a whole suite of um, properties, for example, and maybe some business operations. They need significant advice very frequently about all sorts of stuff, tax related stuff, extracting money out of their business, when they sell their business, how much for, how they manage with inheritance tax, all sorts of stuff like that. That kind of client could have very significant needs um, in terms of their financial planning, but do they have a lot of money to invest? Well, no. Should I work with them? Have I got something to, to give that's valuable? Absolutely. Should I charge for that? Yes. So it just makes sense that to me, when I'm working with a client, I understand what their circumstances are, how complicated their needs are, um, how much time broadly might be needed to help them with things that are most priority. And how much does that cost? Well, it depends on how much time you're going to need. So it doesn't it doesn't go to say that somebody with a million pounds should be charged 10, uh, 10 times as much as somebody with 100,000 pounds because it is not relevant. It is true to say that the more wealth you have, the more complex your circumstances are. So it's likely that somebody with more wealth is going to need or value a more in-depth service and that will cost more, but that's not my starting point. So, so, so Talk, talk me through how you would approach deciding what the initial fee and the ongoing fee is. How, how do you come to that measure? Because, you know, as much as we, myself included, criticize and understand the shortcomings of the um, AUM model, mm. the thing it's got going for it, um, other than it's sort of, latency but the thing it's got going for it is the simplicity you got a million i charge you one one percent we all understand what that is you know you got half a million i charge you one percent so so someone walks in how do you decide a what the initial fee is and what is it all right typically and and how how do you set the ongoing fees um, so I think there's almost two questions in that. And the, the first is, how do I do it? And the second is, how, 
how could it be done elsewhere as well? So I think I'll just address the second one first, if that's okay, because it gives context that I described earlier that what we do is holistic in nature. So I only work with people looking at the entirety of their lives and their financial situations. So that's the context of what I do. What some financial planners do is just focus on the investment. That's not my bag, but I get it if that's what they want to do. For those people, if they want to charge AUM charges, a percentage, well, fine. That's That might suit that model better. So I'm not criticizing people who fo whose focus is purely on investment or something that's very narrow like that, but it doesn't work for our model, which is wider in scope. So how do we go about doing it? Well, I'll tell you what we do now, and it might be interesting for me to explain what we started out doing, because Please. it's different. <laughs> um, so what we do now is we have a very simplistic um, model. It's, there's a flat cost based on how much time we think somebody's going to need. And we can broadly categorize clients that come through the door as needing fairly standard, sort of fairly simplistic planning from our perspective, um, something in the middle or something really complicated, right? So low, medium, high. And we have a flat fee depending on what sort of bucket we put them in. So there's really only likely to be three outcomes, but then, you know, sometimes there's reason to go in between or go a little bit higher or lower. But we have these three um, starting points. So actually that's very straightforward. And the judgment that we're making is how complicated are somebody's circumstances. So if people have multiple businesses, they're more likely to be more complicated. Um, if, I don't know, if they've got um, lots of CGT issues latent or whatever, depends on the circumstances, we'll make a decision about that. Um, the ongoing fee is likely to be the same or perhaps a touch less. So somebody who has complicated circumstances at the beginning has probably still got complicated circumstances afterwards, but perhaps the nature of exactly what they have has been tidied up a bit. Um, so it's broadly based on time, an estimate of time. So I said I would explain what we used to do because that was more complicated. And it was really a case of us over-engineering the problem. Um, so what we used to do was to try and sort of estimate exactly what we might do for that client. So let's say somebody comes to the door and they've got I know, some bits and pieces that need measuring and change, they've got some inheritance tax concerns. We'd sort of put a almost like a time price on some of those things and then come to a cost at the end of it. So we'd think, right, this person needs, you know, 5,614 pounds worth of stuff. And we'd come up with these really bizarre numbers. And then of course you'd overlay a common sense view on it and say, well, that's a bit weird. Um, let's round it up or let's round it down. Or actually that feels a little bit different to what I charge somebody else for something that actually feels the same. So we ended up sort of just recognizing that we were making it much more complicated than we needed to, it made it more difficult. Um, and we, we measured the data. I, we, we might come on to this shortly, but I'm really data-driven in the company. It's all about data. Data is power, as far as I'm concerned. And the data showed that actually it didn't really make any difference whether we were classifying somebody as being um, super complicated or super simple. 
actually what we did in terms of our actual time, time spend was really quite a narrow range. So we had to sort of factor that into account and um, yeah, basically engineer it so it was much, much simpler. Um, so that's where we got to where we are now. And it goes down well. People like the simplicity. The advisors in the firm like the simplicity because it's very easy to explain to somebody what something will cost. Um, and so many prospective clients come to us because of the way we charge. So it just shows to me that there is massive appeal um, in the marketplace for it. Interesting stuff. So, so you know what I'm going to ask now. So I'm going to ask you what the, the actual amount were actually for, for those three th tiers and how do you manage transitions between them? So do you find that someone might start out as um, you know, simple and they move to moderate or complexity? How do you manage um, you know, the transition and, and the conversation? And the other segue or part of this conversation is how do you collect the fees? Do you collect by direct debit into their bank account or is it charged to, you know, to the platform? Talk, talk us through the, the details of that. It's easy. So the medium rate is £6,000. If it's simpler, it's four. If it's more complicated, eight. Okay, simple. So pretty simple. <laughs> four, six, eight. Um, sometimes, though, like we say, we have to... Those are our starting points. So sometimes it just sort of fits in between. And sometimes what somebody needs isn't really even what we would class as simple. Because you have to bear in mind that what we do is targeted to particular types of people. So we mainly um, aim our services at people who are about to retire, who've got quite complicated circumstances. So simple in my classification might be somebody else's real headache, but for us, that's kind of bread and butter stuff. So you know, it's really important to have that context because you could easily compare that against somebody else and think, oh, that's a little bit low or even that's a little bit high you're not necessarily comparing um, one similar service with another. Um, and how do we charge? It's, it's part of the advice as to how we charge. So sometimes we'll recommend that it's paid directly out of somebody's bank account. Sometimes we'll recommend it comes out of a mixture of pension and ISA. It depends on their circumstances, but we'd recommend that um, based on what was um, most beneficial to them. It doesn't make any difference to us. Cool stuff. Let, let's move away from fees. People, yes, okay. people always, yeah, people always, uh, what's the word, accuse me of digging really deep into, into <laughs> fees on this podcast. So we better move on to that. So, so talk, talk us through kind of the structure of the business. You've grown incredibly. So, so advisor, power planner, admin, how, how, do, you know, how many advisors do you have and how do you sort of structure the support around them? And, and you've grown incredibly, um, you know, recently you said you hired five people um, in 2021 alone. That is, uh, uh, or thereabouts, uh, that, that is incredible. So, so what's driving that? Okay, so lots of questions there. So the structure is that um, from an advisory point of view, we have four advisors currently. We've got another one just about to start. So yeah, there will be five. Um, we have a pooled um, power planning team. So it, work is scheduled with power planners according to availability and skill rather than uh, being attached to a particular financial planner. And we have pooled administration as well. So everything is pooled. And in fact, that's, um, 
that's not an accident. Not only does it work more effectively, I think, that way uh, for lots of reasons, but it's also part of the culture of the whole business that it is a supportive and pooled environment. So advisors get paid, and you haven't asked me this question, but advisors are paid a salary. They are not remunerated based on uh, targets or uh, you know any sort of fee metric. Um, so there is not that... Um, feeling that you sometimes get in firms where clients are mine and you can't do anything with them. You, you shall not touch my clients mm -hmm. sort of thing. We don't operate like that. Um, it is supportive. So if, a, if an advisor is not available or not around, the rest of the advisory team will not hesitate to step in and to fill that gap. So that's relevant to add in, I think. Um, so what was the other question you were asking me about... Um, you asked about the people structure. What's the next bit? What's driving the growth? Uh, what's driving the growth? Well, we have a marketing um, element to the business. So um, I have an operations manager who always looks after marketing and we have a marketing assistant. So we are putting a lot of effort into sensible levels of marketing. And we know we have a nice website, blogs go out every week, um, newsletters, webinars, that sort of material. Um, so I think that's driving some growth. Uh, we have some listings online that uh, help with growth, but it's organic. That's the main thing. Um, we have considered uh, acquisition in the past. I considered it briefly, discounted it. Sometimes something else comes up, you think, oh, well, I'll think about it. And you think, no, organic just seems um, sustainable. Uh, we've got no drop in interest in what we do. In fact, the numbers of People, when we measure this stuff, as you might expect, on a weekly basis, we measure how many people have got in touch, how many people have become clients and so on. So we have a lot of data about that. And we can see that it's a very consistent and growing um, level of interest in what we do. So organic growth is the answer, I think, to your question. Now a word from our sponsor. Welcome. I'm going to be speaking to Tom from Barnaby Cecil. What were the advantages or benefits that you saw of working with Betafolio and what sort of made you think that they aligned with your own outlook and would be the perfect fit? Going back to the first option, which would be to employ our own our own investment manager, the the concerns I had with that were, first of all, the cost. You know, we would be looking at £70,000, £80,000 uh, to employ that person. But another concern I had was that we would have an element of groupthink. Um, however, autonomous that person was, we would all end up sitting in an office and, and, and thinking in the same way. Um, and the benefit of Betafolio is that they obviously run portfolios for lots of financial planning firms. They run our portfolio aligned with our investment principles and, and, and how we think money should be managed, but they also are doing it for others. And so we have a bespoke solution, but the comfort knowing that if we did anything that they thought was really unusual and wasn't slightly in line with what others were doing um, that they would they would tell us and they do um, and um, and and that was yeah one of the main reasons that we had then the the collective knowledge of, uh, of the Betafolio team running the money in a, in a manner that we uh, that uh, yeah, aligned with our investment principles um, but we had yeah, the support of, of, of them as a, as a group rather than just uh, yeah, one individual with a lot of responsibility. 
So one thing that struck me there when you were talking about financial planners being remunerated by, you know, by, by the way of his salary is financial planning business is, for whatever reason, a very, very entrepreneurial business. I don't know where they, maybe you have an insight to where this, com where the, where this comes from. It might be, I suspect, um, that because we are often talking to people with a lot of money, maybe we want some. Right, you know where I'm going with this. So, so, but financial plan. So, 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 I'm trying to reconcile this in my mind. How you know someone gets paid a salary, um, you know, for what is essentially very, very entrepreneurial type um, uh, business, and I'm, I'm going to assume um, that you own the company, hundred percent or not. You tell me. Mm -hmm. How do you think about these things in terms of, you know, what you're building to? So as, a, as, a, as an advisor, I come in, I do my job, I get, a, I, I get a, a paid a salary, but there is value being created in the company and in the business that um, I don't participate from, uh, you know, and, and this sort of dovetails into you know, advises them moving on from businesses and setting up their own because frankly, although it's hard, it's not impossible to do. How do you reconcile this in your mind and, mm -hmm. and within the team as, as you, you grow the business? That's a really good question. And I think it's, we have to, uh, again, look at context here that in most professional practices, whether it's financial planning, accountancy, legal advice, there's always that same conflict. And that's, it's not uncommon in, in those professions either for perhaps a partner of a firm um, to decide to go and set up on their own. So it happens everywhere. And those are just the you know, three common professional practices. It happens in every uh, sector as well. So that's fine. That's part of how stuff works. Does everybody want to do that? No, not by a long way. Um, lots of people want security in the way that they work and don't want the, the hassle or the strain or the stress of it. In fact, I think most financial advisors who have gone off and set up on their own in the past have done so perhaps, perhaps for financial reasons, but also because they just want to focus on uh, seeing their clients. And then what happens is that they realize they need to run a business. And they think, oh, there's actually stuff that needs doing that isn't financial advice that was, all, that was always done for me in the past. Yeah. And uh, you know what, this isn't much fun. And they're gonna need to get an administrator and a power planner and a this and a that. And a, before they know it, they're running a small practice and they're spending half their time managing stuff rather than advising their clients. So, you know, am I concerned about the fact that uh, we operate a salary model, no, well, I can't see any reason why I should be. I think it's absolutely the best practice um, and it eliminates poor behavior generally. Um, what about the, the general trend that some people set up on their own? Well, fine, it's always gonna happen. You shouldn't change the way that you do things just because of the fear that somebody might leave um, or you know, don't want to change things but it's my job to make sure that the environment that everybody works in is satisfying 
And but let's like move on and talk about technology. So you, you wrote an article recently, um, actually, about, I think it's about platform and, 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 and technology uh -huh. and some frustrations around that. Yeah. Talk us through a, your current tech stack. So what do you use for financial planning, back office, um, you know, risk profile, all this stuff. And where is the pain point, you know? Mm. What is frustrating you about, about that as of today, as of now? Yeah, so technology is really integral to what we do. Um, so TechStack is, we use Zoho uh, for the majority of the business functions. I know some financial planners use that, but not very many. And it's not a financial uh, piece of kit. So we've created, we've molded it, I should say, into what we need it to be. And it's taken a lot of effort, but it's been very uh, worthwhile doing. So we use that for CRM, back office stuff, accounting, data analytics, building online forms, live chat on the website, HR management, projects, marketing, communications, webinars, everything uses different modules of that system. So it's, it's quite integral to what we do. We've considered all the sort of the IOs of this world and basically there's nothing that's any better and plenty that are a lot worse. So um, that's where we are with that. Then practical stuff, we use uh, FE Analytics for fund uh, analysis, Voyant for cash flow forecasting, um, Microsoft for all the sort of um, video calling, email, that sort of business, um, and platforms, obviously, and a few other bits and pieces, but that's the, the core of what we're using. Pain points. Um, I think there's, there's always going to be pain when you've got different systems that do different things because they are created uh, normally in silos. So they don't like integrating with each other. And even when there is integration, it's never what you hoped it would be. So that's a bit of a pain. Um, I think it's frustrating that systems don't do absolutely everything that I would like them to do, but Reflecting on that, I do really like a challenge. And I think it would be really no fun if you could just buy a system off the shelf that ran your entire business beautifully without it needing any tinkering, although that sort of feels, feels fantastic <laughs> in some ways. I also really like the challenge of creating systems, creating pieces of technology that work. Um, and we're really, really hot on process and process replication. So I love the fact that if we've created a little bit, bit of extra process, we can go into our systems and adapt the workflow immediately so that some of the automation is different. And that's really fun, actually. So, you know, part of my, my brain just likes that kind of thing. And so it'd be pretty boring if, uh, if everything went smoothly. But there are two things that I wish I could change. Would you like to know what they are? Go on, yeah. <laughs> the biggest issues that I have at the moment, the first is purely practical, and that is to do with file and email storage. We use SharePoint at the moment to store stuff. It's okay. but And I know there are systems where you can have files all sort of aggregated together with emails and everything like that. In my research, there's nothing that, does the job well enough for me. Um, I want to have a system where I can see 
all my clients' information uh, in terms of files and emails, phone calls and so on, all in one place, including encrypted emails. I don't want them dealt with separately. Um, and I want metadata. I want to be able to say, I'm searching for everything that this client did related to this property, whether it was compliance related or to do with a review. I want it all in one place so that I can see that. Um, like I said, some systems can do like three quarters of what I'm looking for. I would, I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the new ones to come up that do everything because I think it's possible, um, but it's not there yet. The second thing that is bothering me, which will probably sort of chime with some of the stuff that you're passionate about as well, is to do with some a platform function. So if we just sort of put platform to one side for a second, and think about investing, particularly for pensions and in drawdown, one of the models, of course, is to use a multi-pot strategy, you know, very simplistically, low, medium, high risk, you know, draw from the low risk pot first kind of thing to minimize performance drag. So in principle, you're like, yep, that's all good. That makes a lot of sense. We've modeled it. It's all brilliant. Can you get a platform to actually implement that without a client having like six plus See? pensions? No, you can't. And it is, it, there's a real gap between sort of the academic uh, information that we're trying to implement into people's strategies and what is actually possible. And the really frustrating thing is that this is tech. These are rules and tech, and all that needs to happen is for the people writing the tech to build this into their program, um, to have a function where money can move smoothly between pension plans um, using this sort of model. So that is that is something that bothers me because it's something we want to do, but actually the platform technology doesn't allow us to do without it being an absolute headache. I'm intrigued by um, the the fact that you use a non-industry um, standard CRM and back office system. In the example that I have actually seen, uh, you know, speaking to many firms, is that um, you know even the guys who use Soho or, or you know any of the other back office system, they still have and pay for I.O. or any of the, 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 the industry stuff. And part of the explanation, because I, I, you know, I have over the last, you know, over the last, say last 12 months, I must have spoken to well over 50 advisory firms where we go sort of talk to and say, talk me through exactly what you're doing on the technology. What do you have? What do you use it for? What do you pay? And the, the explanation I get given for having, um, you know, a CRM and then an industry standard back office system is two things. One is so-called Gabriel reporting, right? You know, that, um, you know, the, the industry back office system do that, um, make it easier. So I'm interested to know how you manage to reconcile that, right? The second point is, well, you know, someone said to me recently, well, if ever I want to sell or I want to buy someone, <laughs> another firm, mm -hmm. chances are they're going to be on IO or any of the other mm -hmm. industry standards. So um, I want to be there. How, how do you think about these things? 
I think on the second point, we're just going to have to get over that. So. <laughs> <laughs> With the first point, I think the um, I think it comes down to good data in, good data out. If you invest the time to create good processes, good systems, and make sure that your technology is collecting the information you need, it is very, very easy to get good information out. It takes us about an hour to pull out all the data for the Gabriel reporting. It's not difficult. Um, I don't have to amend anything. I just pull out the data and there it is and I just need to check it. So it's simple. If you've got the right information in, you can pull it out. I think what um, other firms sometimes find is that the traditional IO type um, back office systems are really good at compliance um, and collecting certain types of data, but they're really poor at client management uh, and marketing, for example. Yeah. And they're also quite yeah. restrictive. So you can't create fields to say, you know, I want to collect information about a client's goals, for example you're restricted in what you can do. So people end up set, setting up either spreadsheets or a second CRM system to try and collect that. So we just don't do that. We've done everything through the um, separate system and we've built it. I said molded earlier, didn't I? And that's true. Off the shelf, they don't look at all helpful, but they're so, the Zoho system particularly is so flexible. We can create whatever fields we want in whatever order, we can create different workflows pull information in, out, do whatever we want to. It's really flexible, but can you do that from the day one? Absolutely not. Um, it's taken a massive amount of investment of time and people with the right brains and interest in this kind of thing to actually have systems that work reasonably well. And that investment's been done on our side, so that's fine. Going forward, it's very easy to tinker with and adapt. Um, but you, it would be a mistake to think, or you could just use that system and off you go, you've got a perfect setup because it doesn't work like that. It needs to be molded to what you need. Incredible stuff. So let's, um, I want to start to wrap things up. Before okay. I do though, uh, talk us, give, give us an insight into your investment process. What do you do? What do you keep in house? What do you outsource? What does that look like today? So we are primarily a passive investment company. Um, as you might expect from all the other things that I've said, yes. <laughs> tend to go hand in hand, don't they? Um, <laughs> so pretty much everybody is, uh, uh, has a passive investment portfolio with the exception of those that need ethical um, overlay. Um, we tend to use pre-packaged um, model portfolios from, from um, investment management companies um, or platforms. So that's the, the way that we usually do things. Um, that might change in the future. We may bring um, model portfolio management in-house a little bit more, um, but that'll be a minor adjustment really from the client's perspective. They won't particularly see any difference. Um, so yeah, it's all sort of sensible, um, quite vanilla uh, investment interests really. Uh, I don't see any, any benefit in trying to make a more sexy spin on what is quite a routine function if that makes sense. The markets are doing their job, just need to collect some of that value, thank you, and give that to our clients. Incredible stuff. So, so let's, let's start to wrap this up. Um, you know, talk, us a, talk to us a little bit about your sort of big 
what is it? Big hair, hair, what is it they say? Hair, oh, the beehive? The big hairy audacious beehive. girl? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Your audacious, what, what are you really building to? So fast forward, um, you know, 2030, um, what does the firm look like? And, and, and what is your role, Rebecca, in, in the, in the mm. business? So I don't think it's particularly audacious or hairy, my goal, and perhaps not even that big, but the vision um, is to grow the firm carefully and organically. Um, and throughout all of that, the aim is to create influence. So I think that's probably the best focus that we have. So we can think about influence in terms of influencing our clients' lives. That's pretty obvious. Um, we can influence them positively through the, the power of good financial planning, but also influence on what it's like to work in this profession. So I can influence the careers of people that come and work with us, make sure they have positive experiences, that we are a good employer, that we are open to perhaps people that don't look and sound like we expect, for example. So we can influence that a little. And we want to, in a very small way, because we're only a small company, but in a small way, we want to influence what the profession does too. I'm doing things a little bit differently to many others. It's not unique, but we are a little voice that's you know, doing all right. And so I'd like to think that we can influence the profession. And I know that that's happening because of the number of people that contact me and ask, you know, we're thinking about changing our fee model. We want to do this. Can I just have half an hour with you to ask for your advice about this? Because we'd like to do something a bit more like you are. That's fantastic. It just shows that the, the, the model we're using is getting people's attention. So in 10 years time, what's going to be happening? Well, I think by that time, I'll be in my early 50s and I will probably be starting to take some of my own advice. <laughs> <laughs> which, which brings me very nice. I mean, you, you look much, very much like you're in your 20s to me. But uh, which brings me to my, my next question, which is how do you think about your own retirement and what's in the... Um, older spot portfolio today <laughs> what do you old and how do you approach your own retirement well i think if i didn't do this as my job as my, my as my specialism there's no way at this point in my life i'd be thinking about what my retirement looked like that's for sure <laughs> but i think because the vast majority of my week is taken by listening to people um, talk about their lives and encouraging them to make more of their lives, then I apply that all the time to what I do already. So I'm very much of the view that I should make each day count, uh, make the most of every day. And I normally am chock-a-block filling my diary with things that I love doing. Not quite so much over the last year and a bit, but you know, usually I am sort of living life for today that's that's my my ethos and so when you're used to looking at somebody's life on like a voyant timeline and you see visually how much time is taken on work how much time is taken then on the other end of perhaps the poorly years you see how small 
that little slice of time is where somebody has stopped working and and is still physically active and interested and energized enough to do stuff that they want to do I see that every day so when it comes to my time I want to and I must for my own well-being and to live with everything that I've advised other people I must stretch that chapter as much as I can um, to make the most of it so far as finances allow so that is my that is my aim is that when finances allow, I'll take my own advice and enjoy that stretch of time for as long as I possibly can. But I'm not holding back today either. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, so, and you asked what, what's in my, my pot? Well, you know, I follow my own advice. You know, I've got a pension portfolio with relatively high risk, low cost, passive trackers. Same with ISA money, you know? 100% equity, 80%, 50 what does it look like? Oh, I think it is 70. 70, good stuff, good number. Look, Rebecca, I have been inspired by our conversation. I am um, really, really delighted to see and to hear the progress and the success that you are having. I will keep watching and um, I wish you the very, very best of success. Um, Evan knows our industry needs people like you who do things differently, who dare to question um, and challenge this, this status quo. So thank you very much for your time and um, good luck. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, really, really nice to talk to you about it all. I'll be remiss if I don't thank my incredible team who worked very hard to put this program together, led by my producer, Hannah Dickinson. Thank you, thank you very much, guys. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Timeline App, the retirement planning software, and Bitfolio, the high-tech, low-cost, flat-fee model portfolio manager. And to you, our listeners, thank you for your time. I hope you've had as much fun listening to the program as we have making it. You can find more about the show at retirementals.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is Abraham on Money. Until next time, thank you and goodbye.